Good morning. It's great to be here. I feel like we could almost go home. Those songs were a sermon enough. Uh, just such rich theology about what we celebrate here at Christmas. Uh, how many of you have begun to get ready for Christmas? It's not yet December, so you know you really are on the cutting edge of things. Uh, we have as well. We did like several weeks ago, as I've already said. Uh, in fact, this I guess it was yesterday we went to Drysdale's, got a tree, uh, debated where it should go in the house, and uh, I, you know, ultimately my wife won, and that's wonderful. So uh, the tree is in the right spot in front of uh, one of our windows. Uh, how many of you have begun to prepare yourself for Christmas theologically? That you've, you've opened up the Bible and you said, you know, I, I just really got to this, this time, this year, I just really want Christmas to hit me in a fresh way. Maybe not a new way, but a fresh way. That, that it, would, it would just enlighten our hearts and, and we would really be able to sing with gusto, joy to the world. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Well, today we're going to get ready for Christmas theologically. Uh, today is going to be a, a very uh, difficult sermon. Not in that it's difficult, hard, emotionally, but, but it's going to require us to really sit forward, to become students of the Word of God, and to do some thinking. And the thinking will just get started today, and it's going to take us all week as we begin to sort of pick apart some of the things that I've introduced. And, and today all I can really do is introduce them. Uh, the ideas that we're going to talk about today are so big that the best that I can do as your servant this morning in the Word of God is to introduce them. And then I, I hope we'll be able to discuss them, you'll consider them, you'll be praying about them, and so on. Now, there will come a time in this sermon where you're going to say, well, hold on, I thought this was supposed to be a Christmas sermon. Uh, there's going to come a moment where, where you will just realize, we haven't talked about Christmas in a long time. But just trust me, this, this all is going to come back to our celebration of Christmas this year. It's going to help us. The payoff will be worth it if you persevere until the end. And, and my hope and my prayer is that it would actually change the way we think about Christmas. It would, it would change. Maybe it won't be a brand new idea, but it will be a fresh insight into a very old idea. And it would change the way we celebrate Christmas this year. So all of this that we're about to unpack is, is really sitting on one central question for this morning. And, and the question that we're going to look at is this. Why did Luke begin his gospel the way that he did? Why did Luke begin his gospel the way that he did? And, and he actually camouflages, he almost hides such a profound theological reality that is ours to be grasped at Christmas. Well, how did he begin it? Let's just talk about the facts. Uh, we've looked at two panels so far that Luke started with. The first panel was when Gabriel came to Zechariah in the temple, and Gabriel announced to Zechariah, who was past, he was old in years, and his wife was past the age of childbearing, that they would have a son. That was the first panel, that John the Baptist was going to be born. Now, the second panel was very much like it. It was this very same angel, Gabriel, came down and came to a, a, a young teenage virgin in Nazareth, just a backwater place that hardly anyone had ever heard about. 
And Gabriel goes through a very similar announcement to Mary that he had gone through with Zechariah, that she would conceive and bear a son, Jesus the Messiah. Those are our first two panels. And the third panel is our preaching text this morning. Let's read it again. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 39. In those days, in the days that Elizabeth was bearing John, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to this text, soften our hearts, that as we take a look at the way in which your Holy Spirit inspired Luke to begin his gospel, it, it would change the way we celebrate Christmas this year. Help us to prepare ourselves to celebrate the greatest miracle of all, that, that God came into the world as a man. And Father, we know that this God-man is your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Word, who has been with you since the beginning. I pray that your Spirit would speak through me, conform my words to the truth, guard my tongue, help me to speak in a way that glorifies you, reveals the truth of your Word, and builds up this congregation. We pray this in the grace and the name and the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Luke begins his gospel with three panels. The first panel is all about John. The second panel is all about Jesus. And we don't have time to get into it, but sometime this is a very good exercise for you. Go through and look at all the similarities in those two passages. You'll, you'll find at least 15, depending on how you count, uh, parallels. At least 15 parallels. So the, so the point in those first two panels, and, and we better not miss it, is that John, uh, I mean Luke is saying that these two events are similar. You have to think of them together. That's exactly what this third panel does. It brings John and Jesus together into the same scene. For all the parallels in those first two panels, they remain distinct narrative units. But now those two distinct units come together in today's preaching text. Uh, quite literally, John and Jesus are in the same scene, each in the womb of their mother. John is about six months old, and, and Jesus is probably one or two weeks old. And, and when I say old, that's from the moment of conception. So what's the point? Why did Luke start his gospel this way? I'm going to give you some of the big ideas and then we're going to spend the rest of our time trying to sort of explore what that means. So these are sort of general statements and then we're going to fill them out as we go along. Uh, for Luke, the point is this, and, and if, since it was the point for Luke, it's the point for us as well, that John embodies the old covenant. He personifies it. He represents it. 
He is the last, and according to Jesus, the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant. Jesus embodies the New Covenant. He's the Messiah. He is he's God made man. He is, he is the Lamb of God who, who, with his own blood, will invite us into a new covenant, a, a new covenant of grace and salvation. He is the giver, the author of this new covenant. So, so what we see here then, just, just think about it so, uh, poetically or theatrically. You have, if John represents the old covenant, you have the old covenant coming in this way, and you have Jesus, the new covenant, these two covenants come and they greet one another. And, and what we really want to notice is the way in which the old covenant greets the new covenant with joy. So I'm going to steal my punchline from the very end of the sermon. I'm going to give it to you now, and then we're going to fill it out. Uh, the old covenant rejoices that it is coming to an end. Uh, the old covenant rejoices that the new covenant is coming onto the scene. As John the Baptist would later say, and he's saying this from the womb already, what, what John the Baptist is saying is, I must decrease so that you might increase, or he might increase, the Lord Jesus. Uh, so that's about the men, but it's also about the covenants that they represent. The old covenant must fade away, and the new covenant must come in to full force. Now this is extremely important for us because we are, we're not old covenant people. We're new covenant people. We, we were born again under the new covenant. And because at Christmas, and, and I know it, it is absolutely right, and it is good, it is glorious to celebrate the incarnation, that, that God himself would become a man, and then we can connect that to Easter, and I love that. It's, it's all true, and it's all good. But, but I hope we don't miss, and I think we often do, and that's what today is about, that, that Christmas is that, is that turning point in salvation history where the old covenant gives way to the new covenant. Where law gives way to grace. Where darkness is illuminated by light. And, and if you read John's gospel, darkness equals death, light equals life. It's so profound. What we're celebrating is the old covenant has come and gone. It is no more. And we are now new covenant people, and, and we celebrate that at Christmas. Now, before we go any further, and this is what we're going to spend our time on, it's necessary to define some things. What exactly is the old covenant? It's great to say, old covenant is gone, new covenant is here. And I, I think we might have some hazy idea of what we're talking about, but in my, in my own experience in the church, in my own experience reading books and studying uh, there's a lot of very slight, subtle, but very real nuances in what we might mean about these things. What do we mean about the Old Covenant? What do we mean about the New Covenant? So when I got to this point in preparing this morning's sermon, I just stopped and I said, ah, oh, this is too big. I, I don't know that I can do this in, in one sermon. In fact, like, how long do you have? Can we be here for eight hours today and eight hours tomorrow and eight hours the next day? Because this is such a big idea that, that all we're going to be able to do is sort of sketch out some generalities, which means then you have to extend some, some work in this. You need to work hard to hear what I am trying to say. You have to work with me. 
Yeah, you have to come alongside and say, okay, what, what are these ideas that are just being introduced? And if we had hours upon hours to nuance them, what might result, what might be the fruit of that conversation? And I'd be happy to do that with you. So I paused and I prayed and I said, oh God, help me to put together something that is meaningful and true and faithful to your scriptures and helpful to you, so sure. So let's just pray again. These are big ideas. And this is where it's going to seem like we're departing from the preaching text, but we're not. We're going to come back. And all of this is in Luke's mind as he writes the beginning of his gospel. Oh God, we come to you a second time in prayer in this one sermon to, to plead with you, to say, oh Holy Spirit, open our eyes, help us to work together to understand the relationship between the old and the new covenants. I pray that all of us would, would gain some, some fresh insight today, even if it isn't new, but fresh insight that we might celebrate at Christmas this wonderful transition from old to new. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, these are very big questions that require an appropriate humility. Nobody ought to approach this topic with anything less than a full heart of, of humility, recognizing that these are big ideas. Well-meaning men and women who love Jesus dearly have and continue to sharply disagree about what the old covenant is and what its relationship with the new covenant is. I always want to give you an example. One of the books that I read this week, not every page, but fairly well, was this one. It's called Law and Gospel, Five Views. Now, the five men that wrote, contributed to this book, they all love Jesus. They're all committed to the new covenant. But they disagree about some things, about what the old covenant is and what the new covenant is and what the relationship is between them. But what I appreciated is each one would set forth their understanding of, of the relationship between the two, and, and then there would be uh, an opportunity for the four others to respond. And you know what I loved was the, the grace and the charity that these scholars gave to one another. As they said, you know, I don't always agree with, with so-and-so, but I do like what he said here, there, and there. And we do agree on this, this big idea of salvation in Christ. And so they extended grace to one another, and they worked collaboratively together on a book called Five Views on Law and Gospel. And so I just want us to be mindful of this, that, that, that men who are greater than me in the kingdom, who have, have greater wisdom and understanding into these things, are disagreeing about these things. So let this be an opportunity for us to seek deeper together and not for it to take us apart. I am increasingly convinced that much of the disagreement on this topic has less to do with substance and more to do with nuance, semantics, and emphasis. Some people love to, to accentuate the law. Some people love to accentuate grace. Well, the Bible teaches both. How we balance these two is extremely important for how we walk with God in Christ. Very, very important. That's what I'm going to endeavor to help us to do today. Our goal will be to see both the continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the discontinuity. There's a reason that it's called a New Covenant. 
It's new. There's, there's some discontinuity between the two covenants. But there's also great continuity. God didn't say, uh, you know, at Christmas, the original day that Jesus was conceived and then born, and he didn't say, well, that didn't work. We'll get rid of that. We're going to start something totally new. He didn't do that. There's continuity, but there's discontinuity. So we have to look for both. We have to look for both law and grace in both and exactly what that means. Now, one of the difficulties with this topic is how exactly we should define the Old Covenant. What do we mean? Which Old Covenant are we talking about? Are we talking about the Old Testament? Are we talking about God's covenant with Adam? And if we're talking about God's covenant with Adam, is that God's covenant with Adam before the fall or after the fall? Uh, Are we talking about God's covenant with Noah? And if with Noah, is that before the flood or after the flood? Are we talking about God's covenant with Abraham? And if so, are we talking about that, that covenant in Genesis 12 or Genesis 15 or Genesis 17? Are we talking about God's covenant with Moses? And, and if with Moses, is that before, during, or after the Passover? En route to Sinai, or when Moses was on top of Sinai? Or are we talking about God's covenant with David? Or, are we talking about none of that? We're actually talking about two covenants, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace in various dispensations over time, which would mean that a covenant of works had one law, which basically said, don't eat that fruit. When you do, you'll die. Covenant of works. Covenant of grace. Oh, you ate the fruit. Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to end the humanity here. I'm going to save you by grace. And then all of these covenants that we've mentioned become uh, dispensations of the covenant of grace in some way or another. All ultimately climaxing in the new covenant. So, so which which covenant are we talking about? I mean, God is a covenant-making God. And, and I, I fear that in the church we often overly simplify God's interaction with humanity. We say, well, I don't know. Like, let me just pick one. Uh, covenant of works sounds good because it's different than the covenant of grace. And then we may not even exactly know what that means. Now, just so you know, I do, I do believe in a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. And I do believe that the fall of humanity stands right at the, at the turning point of the two covenants. But here's what makes the Old Testament so difficult to interpret. The covenant of works that, that God established before the fall sort of bleeds forward in time into the, into the Old Testament. And the new covenant of grace, which is really established with Jesus Christ, John said it, right? The law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, goes all the way back in time to save Adam. So then you, in, in the Old Testament, you've got this real problem. Are we in the, in the old, old covenant or the new covenant? Are we in the covenant of works or are we in the covenant of grace? Well, both. You see, even Israel in the Old Testament was in this already, not yet. Already in grace, not yet in grace. Depending on sort of the lens that you take. So you see why I mean that this is a big topic. This is not easy to sort out. 
And, and unfortunately, it causes so much strife in local churches. When we're talking about the Old Covenant today, and I, I, I landed here because I believe that most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, this is where Paul lands. That when we speak of the Old Covenant today, what we're talking about is the covenant that God gave to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. So I'm going I'm to state that because we only have so much time, but, but you know that I'm aware of all these other covenants that God has made. But when we mean Old Covenant, John was the last great prophet of the Mosaic Covenant. Mosaic is just the covenant through Moses. So God gave the Old Covenant through Moses. Where would you find this Old Covenant in your Bible? Got to be careful because the Torah or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's called the law or the Torah, the instruction, uh, but it's not exactly the same thing as the Old Covenant. If, we, if we're defining Old Covenant as the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant that God gave to Moses. In fact, those first five books of the Bible, which I, I like to refer to them as the Torah, Hebrew word for law or instruction, uh, the Torah is a narrative that describes the historical context within which God gave Israel the Old Covenant. So they're similar, but they're not exactly the same. If you were looking specifically for this Old Covenant through Moses, you would find it predominantly in the second half of Exodus the entire book of Leviticus. It's scattered through Numbers, because Numbers is a narrative book with, with uh, different things set into it, such as a census at the beginning and the end, and then pieces of the Old Covenant throughout it. And then the, it's, it's repeated for us in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is, is the most succinct, the most formalized presentation of the Old Covenant in the Bible. And in fact, that becomes Jesus' favorite place to go when he's talking about the Old Covenant, the book of Deuteronomy. So if I did send you to one book of the Bible where you would find the Old Covenant, I would send you to Deuteronomy. Now, what is the Old Covenant? What would you find if you, if you did a careful exegetical study of the Old Covenant in the Torah? What would you find? Well, you would find 613 laws. Now, the function of these laws was to show God's perfect standard. To illuminate for us the holiness, the greatness, the untouchability, the transcendence of God. Now, under the Old Covenant, I'm going to nuance this in a moment, but I want to say this statement first. Under the Old Covenant, the only way to be right with God is to keep all 613 laws perfectly without a single transgression over the course of an entire lifetime. That's quite a burden to bear, especially if you recognize that every law had this surface to it and then some depth to it. Let me give you an example, an example that Jesus himself gave. Murder, that's one of the 613 laws, thou shalt not commit murder. Surface of the law, fairly easy to keep. Right? Fairly easy. Not, not everyone has been able to, but fairly easy not to murder someone. But Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, helped us to see that that law has a depth to it 
And that law includes don't be angry with your brother. Don't hate anyone. Be at perfect peace and extend love to everyone. So so that one law has the surface, don't murder, but the intent, even in the Old Covenant, covered anger and hatred. Now, if you count up 613 laws and you say, okay, what's the surface interpretation of the law? What's the depth of each law? It's impossible to keep the Old Covenant. Absolutely impossible in our fallen nature with our sinful nature, to keep the Old Covenant. No one has been able to do this. Therefore, there are other laws in the Old Covenant that say, if you fail, you are to die, you are to be judged, and you are to be condemned to eternal exile, separated from God forever. Anyone want to submit themselves to that covenant? Do you want to be under that covenant? No, of course not. Now you might say to me, yes, but there was the sacrificial system. So there was grace in the old covenant. You just have to bring a a turtle dove or a sheep or a goat or a ram or a bull depending on your position in society and how much money you had, and you would offer that animal in, for, in, in exchange for forgiveness from your sins. And, and you might point to Leviticus 16 and talk about the Day of Atonement where the high priest once a year would go into the Holy Holies take the blood of a goat and atone for the sin of the nation. You say, well, there was built in a grace mechanism into the, into the law, into the Old Covenant. And, and what I would just say back to you is... Uh, In fact, if you read the Old Covenant carefully, there is no forgiveness for intentional sin. All that the sacrificial system was meant to cover was unintentional sin. Sin that you had no idea that you were committing it. Uh, For example, maybe you were just on your way to church one day at the synagogue and, and you happened upon a dead animal but you weren't looking because you were looking up to God and you were praying to Him and you stepped on the dead animal, you're unclean. there's a ritual where you would take a sacrifice that was unintentional we also have to see that part of the old covenant comes with blesses and curses this is a conditional covenant a conditional covenant which means if you keep the law I will bless you great if you break the law I will curse you And if you read Deuteronomy 28, there are three times as many curses as there are blessings. You may say, well, hmm, it's not very good. But that's actually generous on God's part. I know there's a lot of parents here. What is more uh, merciful and patient with your children? I'm going to count to three and then you're in big trouble. Or I'm going to count to ten. Or I'm going to count to 100. Can you imagine actually doing that? You're not doing what I want you to do, but I'm going to start counting to 100. If I get to 100 and you're still doing it, then you're in trouble. That's why there's so many curses. They, they extend. They get, they get harder and harder. Uh, and so God is saying, before I exile you from the land, I'm going to give you many, many, many opportunities to change your ways. And you say, well, there's some grace there. Yes, yes, yes. We're going to nuance this in a moment. But in the end, before we add any nuance to the Old Covenant, Those under the Old Covenant could only expect to receive the curses. 
Moses himself says it in Deuteronomy. You're going to go into the land, you're going to try and keep the promises, but in the end, you're going to fail. God's going to boot you from the land, but go ahead, take the land, have fun. But in the end, under the old covenant, you're going to get the curses. Because there's 613 laws with a surface interpretation and a depth to each law. You're going to break the law. You're going to die. You're going to be judged. You're going to be condemned under the old covenant. So before we go any further, let's just characterize the old covenant. We have to admit that the old covenant, at least in the main, is a covenant of works. Which means that if the covenant of works given to Adam were done in Genesis 3.15 with that promise of grace, then the old covenant is really out of place in God's salvation history. But what we see is this covenant of works extends forward. Even while the covenant, uh, or covenant of works extends forward even while the covenant of grace reaches backward. That's what makes the Old Testament so hard to interpret. Sometimes God is operating under works, conditional promises. Sometimes God is operating under grace, unconditional promises. But the Old Covenant given to Moses was filled with conditional promises. You keep the law, you're blessed. You break the law, you're cursed. But the Old Covenant uh, is good. It reveals the goodness of God, the holiness of God, and it reveals the sin of humanity. And it condemns sinners. And God is glorified by condemning sinners. You have to get your head around that. But God glorifies Himself in judgment when He condemns sinners. Of course, that's not the whole of the story. So the, the function of the Old Covenant is to reveal sin. It is also, the function of the Old Covenant is also to give God an opportunity to condemn sinners. And both are good things in God's economy. Both give God glory. And if it gives God glory, then it is good. Um, under the old covenant, however, the future is very bleak for us. So God gets the glory. God is proved to be good. God is, is proved to be holy. God is proved to be righteous. But it's very bleak for us. We stand condemned. Now, the one thing that, that we have to point out, now we're going to begin to nuance the Old Covenant, okay? So as we go forward, was God just trying to condemn sinners? No, no, no. There, there is this, this backward-reaching grace in the, that sort of interlinks itself with the Old Covenant. And one thing that the Old Covenant does phenomenally is it shows us our need for a new covenant. Right? Uh, David, this is where David got to. David got to the point where, God, I, I love your law. I love it. It shows me how good you are, but, so that's Psalm 119, but it shows me how wretched I am. And then David 
by the Holy Spirit, was able to say, along with many other people who were under the Old Covenant, says, there's got to be more, that this, this is pointing forward to a Savior. This is pointing forward to something new that you are going to do. And I claim the grace that I know you have. I claim the grace that you're going to extend to me in spite of this Old Covenant, in spite of my breaking of your 613 laws. I am, I am falling at your feet. There's nowhere I can go in the Old Covenant. I can't justify myself. I can't make myself right here. Well, I am falling before you, God, and I am beseeching you. Save me! David did that. He wasn't saved by the Old Covenant. He was saved by the new covenant, reaching back for him, reaching back to save him. And uh, forgive me, I can't remember if it's Psalm 51 or 52, but, you know, read them both. David prays after he, he's really, really distraught about his sins, specifically about Bathsheba. He says, God, unless you give me a new heart, I, unless you wash me, I stand condemned. But don't for a moment think that David is appealing to some mechanism of grace in the Old Covenant. He's not. He's, by the Holy Spirit, prophesying of future grace that will reach back and save him. Let us not confuse the Old Covenant, then, with the Old Testament Scriptures. Unfortunately, testament means covenant. But it's just too simplistic because the new covenant reaches back into the Old Testament. So we can't just confuse and say, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute. I see grace at work in the Old Testament. Therefore, there must have been grace at work in the Old Covenant. No. Don't confuse the Old Testament with the Old Covenant. The Old Testament is a collection of literature of various genres that depict a people wrestling with and working out the Old Covenant in their lives and also being condemned by the Old Covenant and also being redeemed by the New Covenant, which was secured for them in their future on the cross of Christ. And so, of course, the Old Testament is filled with grace. And I love to preach this, that unless you see grace in the Old Testament, you've not yet begun to understand the Old Testament. You must see grace on every page of the Old Testament. Otherwise, Genesis 4 is the last chapter of the Bible, and Adam and Eve have no children, and they are condemned, and hell is populated by Satan and the demons and two people. So if there's no grace in the Old Testament, Genesis 4 is the end. Like I said, though, don't, don't mix that up, though. The Old Testament and Old Covenant are not exactly the same. But the New Covenant is so potent. When Jesus Christ came into the world in the center of, of time... Uh, the grace that came with him was so potent that it didn't care about past, present, and future. And it just filled all of time with his grace. Reaching all the way back to Adam and saving him. That's how wonderful Christmas is. Because, because Jesus came into the world and the grace that came with him at that moment specifically in time and space did not care to consider time. It went all the way back to the beginning, all the way forward to the end. 
and blanketed this universe, this creation, every square inch of space and time with the grace of Christ for those who, by God's sovereign will, would reach out for it. Therefore, there are glimpses of even the new covenant in the old covenant. Though it is a covenant of works that condemns, God so wrote it to point us forward, not just in our need for a Savior, but also, he says, I'm going to set up a system of worship that will be fulfilled by the new covenant. Even though that system won't save you from your sins, the system that it looks forward to will. It's just brilliant. I mean, I guess that's an understatement, right? God, you're a genius, of course. He's, he's so wise. And he's able to do so much all at the same time. Therefore, just before we move on to the New Covenant, Old Testament saints are saved by the New Covenant. Adam and Eve, I believe there's scriptural reason to believe that they're saved. Their sins were taken forward and put on the body of Jesus Christ and they were atoned for at the crucifixion. The new covenant is a covenant of grace that saves all people who will be saved. There's no other route to salvation but through the new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, Old Testament saints wouldn't have been able to articulate the gospel exactly as we do. Nevertheless, when they put their confidence in the Word of God, as revealed to that point in the shadows of the New Covenant, that God laced together with His Old Covenants, uh, then they were saved. Okay, that's the Old Covenant. What, what then is the New Covenant? I mean, I couldn't even talk about the Old Covenant without reference to the New Covenant, because, because in God's glorious Wisdom, he put the two so together. But first of all, what is the new covenant not? Double negative. What is the new covenant not? The new covenant is not a rejection of the old covenant. This is where the continuity comes. Uh, Just listen while I read to you from the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. By law, he means the law of Moses. This is Jesus speaking. And by the prophets, he means that the prophets were constantly calling Israel back to the old covenant, saying we should be keeping the old covenant. And when we break it, we should confess. And the prophets also looked forward to the new covenant. They stood right between the two. He says, look, I haven't come to do away with the old covenant. I haven't come to do away with the law. I haven't come to do away with the prophets who called you to repent when you broke the old covenant. I didn't didn't come to do away with any of that. I have not come, says Jesus, to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not a yoda nor a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Has heaven passed away yet? Has earth passed away yet? No. No. So there's something that God started in the Old Covenant that is enduring. But it's enduring in and through the New Covenant. So important that we see that. It's not enduring as it was. 
None of us should try and keep the old covenant the way Israel was told to keep the old covenant. That just doesn't work. It was proved to not work. But what I do want to see is there's continuity. In fact, the new covenant affirms and upholds the old covenant. Let's just review. The the old covenant had 613 laws. Well, the new covenant requires the fullness, not just the, the shallow surface level, but the fullness of all 613 laws. The new covenant says that the fullness of the law must be kept. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is, right? Jesus doesn't give us an exhaustive new law. He just gives us a hermeneutical principle, a strategy for understanding the old covenant in light of the new covenant. Murder is not just about killing people anymore. It's about being angry with your brother. Adultery is not just about adultery anymore. It's about having lust in your heart. And so on and so forth. So you do that. That's two laws. You do that with all 613 laws. That's the demand of the new covenant which is the same as the demand of the Old Covenant. Now, the way in which you fulfill the depth of the 613 laws looks differently depending on whether or not you would categorize the law as a moral law, a ceremonial law, or a civil or judicial law. For example, and I've already done the moral one, murder, adultery, so we saw that. There's an intensification in the moral law. I would say that it was always intended by the Old Covenant, but it's made explicit by Jesus in the New Covenant. What about ceremonial law? Uh, In some ways, I suppose we could say the ceremonial law is over. It's done. It's abolished. It's ended. I just don't like the semantics of that. I don't find that that is actually the best way because, for example, circumcision. Do we have to keep the law of circumcision? Ceremonial law... On the one hand, no, okay, no, you don't have to be circumcised in the flesh. On the other hand, yes, you're not a new covenant person unless your heart's been circumcised by the Holy Spirit. We keep the law. Uh, what about sacrifices? Uh, at the beginning of Leviticus, you've got five different kinds of sacrifices. Who brought a sheep to church today that I might sacrifice him? <laughs> Nobody did, right? So, it, oh, then the sacrificial system has been abolished. Because we're in the new covenant. No, not at all. We are still under the sacrificial system. In fact, we're under a greater sacrificial system than the old covenant. The old covenant sacrificial system was shadows and images and types. We've got the substance. So, so did you bring a, a lamb to church today? You bet you did. And, and you bring blood to worship. The blood of God himself in human form. That's not the end of the sacrificial system. What about a high priest? Oh, we're the priesthood of all believers. You don't need to go to a priest anymore. And and clearly the uh, uh, Roman Catholic Church has got this totally backwards. So, So yes, we're the priesthood of all believers. But are we still under the priesthood? Yes, we are. We have a high priest. His name is Jesus. 
So, so you take those ceremonial laws. I don't like to say that they're abolished. I like to say, like, Jesus, they're fulfilled. And, and we're still under the ceremonial law, only not on the surface of the law, in the depth of the law, what that law was always intended to be and to point forward to. What about civil and judicial? We say, well, those are, those are gone, right? Those are just for the, the nation of Israel. Well, what about muzzling an ox when he's treading out the grain? I don't know. I don't have an ox. If I did, could I muzzle him while he was treading out the grain? I suppose I could. But you got to pay me to preach. That's a, that's a civil law. And, and Paul in 1 Timothy 5 says, you better keep that law for your pastors and teachers. Okay? I, I really like that civil law. <laughs> so let's not do away with the civil law. What about punishments? Oh, you know, it was so bad. You, you uh, commit adultery, you're stoned under the old covenant. We don't keep that anymore. Don't we? Why did Jesus die? It's because we got lust in our heart. Because we have anger in our, and bitterness in our soul. Capital punishment is still in effect, people. Under the new covenant. When we do away with portions of the law then, we, we, we flatten out the gospel. So the new covenant still reveals and punishes sin. Continuity. But, now this is, this is a big however, the new covenant has some features that the old covenant did not. Uh, I very generously received today an iPhone 6 because I need a phone to be your pastor. So sure, you bought that for me, so thank you. That phone has some features that my old iPhone does not. They're both iPhones. There's a lot of continuity between them. There's some new features. So, ah, so it is with the new covenant. There's some new features. Well, I can't give you all of the new features and get to the bottom of it, but let me just, this is overly simplistic, but let me just introduce two. One, one new feature of the new covenant that the old covenant did not have is a suffering servant. A second new feature that the, the new covenant has that the old covenant didn't have, at least not the way that, that this new feature is manifested in the new covenant, is an indwelling counselor. Now there's more we could talk about, but that, that'll be enough uh, to get us started thinking on these things. So to recap. The new covenant is exactly the same as the old covenant. In fact, Jesus says, look, I don't want you to miss this. The Old Testament law, or the old covenant, got to be careful, right? Old Testament The old covenant law has a depth to it. It was always there. And now I'm calling you as new covenant people to be mindful of that and to recognize that. Now, but the new feature, which is a very, very good feature, is the suffering servant prophesied by the prophets. Uh, particularly, you think about Isaiah chapter 53. That's just one of many places you could go in the Old Testament where the prophets are saying, ah, this old covenant is bad, you need to repent, uh, but just don't worry, there's a new covenant coming, and it comes with a suffering servant. Uh, this suffering servant is a representative for Israel. So Israel, 
Line up. Every, every person in Israel, line up. You failed. 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 Keep going. You read the census in numbers that way. <laughs> Gershom, you failed. <laughs> Ahab, you failed. You, know, you failed. It, it, God makes the point, doesn't he? Nation of Israel, my chosen people, you failed. So I'm going to send someone to represent you, and he's not going to fail. It's good news. Now, if, if the suffering servant comes for Israel, Israel was always, this is really a, a neat piece of salvation history, biblical theology, the nation of Israel was supposed to be the suffering servant for the nations. So hypothetically, if, if Israel had collectively been able to keep the old covenant, then God would have punished Israel for us. But Israel needed to be punished for Israel. So Israel needs a representative. So Jesus comes as a suffering servant to represent Israel. And if representing Israel, representing all of the nations. Because he did what Israel was unable to do. Keep the law and be the suffering servant on behalf of the nations. So now humanity has a representative. He is the suffering servant. Now look at what he does. He perfectly keeps the fullness, the depth, of every one of the 613 laws of the Old Covenant. Perfectly, without fail, no transgression. So, if you want to know what Jesus did, you know, we say it so quickly, Jesus lived without sin. That's a great thing to say, it's true. If you ever want to appreciate what that means, get a list of 613 laws, then think about each law individually, what is the fullness of that law, and then you, then you look at that column and you say, wow, that was the life of Jesus. Perfect. Holy. Now, Remember, Deuteronomy 28, blessings and curses. If you keep the law, says God, I will bless you. I will. I'll bless you. So Jesus should have received the fullness of the blessings of the Old Covenant. Again, go to Deuteronomy 28, look at the blessings, and then think about the fullness of each one of those blessings. That should have come to Jesus. And, and, and yet, what does Jesus do instead? As our representative, as the representative for the nation Israel, and because he's the representative for Israel, he's a true Israel, uh, as representative for all nations and every person in every nation, he takes the curses of the old covenant. Do you know what the climactic curse in Deuteronomy 28 is? Exile. Do you know what the fullness of exile is? So, so the curse was, I gave you this land, this little bit of real estate in the Middle East. If you don't keep the covenant, I'm going to boot you out. They went to Babylon. Do you know what the fullness of that curse is? Hell. Hell. Exile. That's what hell is. Hell is exile from God. So, so Jesus takes... You, you want to know what, what Good Friday was all about, what the crucifixion was all about? You take all of those curses in Deuteronomy 28 and then go through and look at the fullness of what each of those curses would be. That's what Jesus experienced on the cross. The full weight of hell, climactically.
So the new covenant comes with blessings and curses, but with this additional feature of a representative who ought to have been blessed but was cursed. And by taking all of the curses, you know what he does for us? This is is what we celebrate. This is what John is is leaping for joy about in in his mother's womb. Uh, He secures the fullness of all the blessings of the old covenant for those of us who put our faith in him. This is a great trade. Jesus, the perfect one, takes the curses. We get the blessings. And this is, this is written into the new covenant. And what did Jesus say? This is the new covenant written in my blood. Second feature of the new covenant is this indwelling counselor. The old covenant was written by the finger of God on external rocks of stone or uh, panels of, of stone and rock. And so, so somebody would look at the external law and say, oh, wow, hmm. Ah, I <laughs> can't do that. And then they would fail. But what, what Jesus promises to us the night before he was crucified was an indwelling counselor who is the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit does more for us than this, okay? So I'm going to give you four things. It's not the, the full job description uh, ministry of the Holy Spirit, but th- I think this will be sufficient for us this morning. Number one, this indwelling counselor, which is a feature of the new covenant given to us, uh, he unites us to Christ. This is a very important first step. In order for Jesus to take the curses on our behalf and to give to us the blessings, uh, we have to be united with him in his death, and we need to be united with him in his resurrection. So we die with him, and with us our sin goes into the grave. If Jesus comes out of the grave, our sin stays in the grave, and we come out with him. It's a good deal. And this is not just spiritually. We will be physically raised back to life. That's, that's written in the new covenant, and it's, it's done by the indwelling counselor and the authority of God. Secondly, the Holy Spirit circumcises our hearts. So, so in the old covenant, you, you circumcise the flesh and throw it away. Uh, what the Holy Spirit does at that very moment that we come to faith is the Holy Spirit literally comes into our life and, and cuts the sin out of our life and nails it to the cross. That's what it means to be circumcised in the new covenant. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit regenerates us. There's different language that's used in the Bible for this. Paul uses sanctification. Sanctification is that regeneration where you're you're, you're made into a new creature. John and Peter use the word being born again. Holy Spirit does that. And when we are regenerated, our nature is changed in our hearts. Now, we still have the old nature flailing about in the, in the members of our flesh. And we're at war with ourselves. Okay, I understand that. But at the center of our being now, we have a new nature. In our heart, we desire 100% of the time to be holy. We're still responsible for the sin that we do. Uh, but, but at the center of who we are, we agree with God about his perfect righteousness, and we want to be righteous with him. Uh, blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, 
Unless you're regenerated, you cannot hunger and thirst for righteousness. You just will not. But, but the hallmark of the new covenant person is that we do hunger and thirst for righteousness because we've been regenerated, we've been sanctified, we've been born again. And then fourthly, the Holy Spirit takes up permanent residence in us. The grace of the new covenant is sealed and protected in us by God personally. He he didn't send Gabriel for this. This It's so important. And, And if God is sealing the righteousness that has been imputed to us, who will rob us of that? What thief will come to steal the righteousness that Jesus paid so dearly to give us and then he sealed it with his own Holy Spirit? It's unshakable. It's unstealable. It's unending. These are good features. Continuity, discontinuity. The old covenant not having these features but anticipating them. Longing for them. Now, it might seem like we've strayed a long way from our preaching text. But we haven't. All of that is necessary to really appreciate our preaching text. Now, I understand there's other things happening in this preaching text. Uh, Mary was just told that she conceived the Messiah in her womb. He would be the Son of God without ever being with a man. You might want to go and confirm that message, right? Like, uh, oh, you go and confirm it with Elizabeth. So she goes, and, and Elizabeth, who's past the age of being able to bear a child, says, blessed are you that you believed. I am the confirmation that God is giving miraculous conceptions. What you heard from the angel is true. I, that's in the text, but that's, that, that's just so surface level to what the text is really trying to get to. John, who's in the womb of Elizabeth, who was introduced in the first panel of Luke's gospel, is the last and the greatest prophet of the Old Covenant. He embodies, he personifies. uh, When you're interpreting this, he is the Old Covenant. Jesus is the suffering servant, the Messiah, uh, the giver of the New Covenant. So in today's preaching text, as I started with, John, the Old Covenant, is meeting with Jesus, the New Covenant. What a profound moment in history. As I said, this this covenant of works is reaching forward in time from before the fall. The covenant of grace is reaching backward in time. And they kiss at this moment in the wombs of two mothers. It's a beautiful moment. And this is the major theme of Christmas. Like in addition to uh, some other major themes, but one of the major themes of Christmas is, is this meeting of the two covenants of works and grace. 
At Christmas then, we celebrate, and this is what I hope we will prepare ourselves to do this year. We celebrate the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant. Luke begins his gospel to answer our original question by describing this transition. He begins with the promised birth of the last prophet of the Old Covenant. He follows that with the promised birth of the Messiah of the New Covenant. And then he shows the meeting of the two. Now, how should we feel about this transition? Are we glad? Are we sad? Are we anxious? Are we... Well, John, John tells us how we ought to feel. Uh, now, just remember who's doing the leaping here. It's great that he's in the womb of, of his mother, and I love that, that this happened while they were both in the womb. And the, I mean, I had a whole other sermon about the sanctity of life, but... You know, John, even before he's born, is rejoicing that the very covenant that he champions, even from the womb, is coming to an end. Like, he's so glad. Say, it's over, people. I'm done. Like, I've done it. It's over. He didn't do it. But, you know, it's done. I've announced the end of this covenant because this covenant is not all it's cracked up to be. It's a hard covenant. And the last prophet of the old covenant is so happy. Finally, God, you have done it. It's over. The Messiah has come. And, and that's why we say when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in her, the old covenant residing in her womb, leaped. And Mary, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, which means what she's about to say is God speaking through her. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me, the greatest mother of the old covenant, the mother of my Lord, the mother of the new covenant, should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby, the old covenant in my womb, leaped for joy. See, the Old Covenant was spiritual. If it wasn't, if it was man-made, the Old Covenant would have fought tooth and nail to preserve itself. The Old Covenant would have said, no, 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 you're not going to do away with me. This is what the Judaizers do, right? This is what the book of Galatians is all about. You're not going to do away with me. We're going to do this the old-fashioned way. You're going to work harder. You're going to try harder. You're going to be a better person, or else you're going to be condemned. That's the way we're going to do this. But that's not, that's not what John does, and he is the last prophet of the old covenant. He says, yes, it's over. It is over. I'm so, so glad. In fact, I hope I have a short ministry. John leaped for joy. If John leaped for joy, how much more then should we rejoice to be partakers, not of the old covenant, but of the new covenant, with great features like a suffering servant and an indwelling counselor. Uh, the old covenant was a covenant of law and works. The new covenant is a covenant of grace, so potent and powerful that the new covenant saved Adam. And we were born under the new covenant's reign. Let us, therefore, as members of the new covenant, never put ourselves under the old covenant again. 
Jesus kept the old covenant for us. Jesus was punished with all of the curses of the old covenant for us. Jesus extends to us even when we fall into sin. All of the blessings of the new covenant. At Christmas then we celebrate that we are new covenant people. Saved by the precious life, vicarious death, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, our God and Messiah, our suffering servant, our new covenant champion, our God and our King, Jesus. He was born, and the old covenant rejoiced to give him the torch. John leaped for joy. May we leap with sincere and abounding joy. God bless you. Amen.